History. History. Through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes. Presented on the air and online by Provident Payments. Proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. And they don't have to go untold as long as we're willing to do something about it. Take a little time, ask a few questions, and listen. You might just be amazed by what some of your neighbors have to say. The idea behind this show is to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice, to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And as a result, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but so often we find inspiration through the memories, the experiences, the perspective that ends up being shared here. We almost always hear from American veterans of World War II, but today we're going to get a little different twist. Our guest was up against the Nazi regime and probably got to see how the enemy operated just as intimately, if not more so, as any American GI in Europe. But his opposition to Hitler and his henchmen came as a member of the Dutch underground. At 90 years old, Dutch Vryoff is still incredibly active. Perhaps you've even purchased a vehicle from him in California's Kings County, where he's been operating as a car wholesaler for decades. He's a mechanic. He's a rockhound. But when World War II came to his homeland, he was just a young Dutch farm boy. I was born in uh, 1933, and I was seven years old when the Germans invaded our village, or Holland period, and they firebombed the city of Rotterdam. And the reason that they did that was because the Dutch was, were neutral, but they didn't honor it, and they fought very hard at the borders, and they wouldn't give up. And on the, the two cruisers came in, they'd been in, in the Dutch Indies, and they fought to death in the, in the waterweg, which is the entrance to Rotterdam, and they fought till all their ammunition was going. The propaganda minister of the Germans came on the radio, and he gave the Dutch an alternative that if they didn't lay the weapons down and quit fighting, they were going to firebomb the city of Rotterdam. And, and they did that because they didn't give up. And down in our, our we, we lived, our village was 11 kilometers south of Rotterdam. And we grew produce. My dad had a field to the north, and on, on my uncle uh, Bill, he had a middle, and on my grandfather had the south uh, part of the land. When the Germans came, they were in their, the bombers, and that were the Heinkels, and the Messerschmitts were the fighter planes, and they came over our village and they dropped the parachutes, parachute guys, by the hundreds. They were so so far advanced in technique, they had a motorcycle with a sidecar, and the guy was strapped on the motorcycle and three parachutes, and, and they, they came right, they landed in our field. Well, I mean, I've seen it with Mona. You're a seven-year-old kid, and you see this motorcycle parachuting from the sky with a sidecar. That's right. And Tom, the one of the other guys jumped in the sidecar, and they mounted an, an a machine gun, and off they went. Now, I don't want to lose track of where we are there, but I am curious to set the stage. Do you have some memories of what life was like before the Germans invaded? Is maybe the context of, of what wartime was like 
maybe we understand it more if we know what your life was like as a boy before the war came. I had to work very hard, and, and I went to grammar school, but we walked over there, and during the winter, there was uh, the water. We had canal in front of our house and behind our house, and on the Maas River was the big, ma- the, the big river right on the edge of the village. My village, the name of the village is Rhone, R-H-O-O-N. The nobleman who owned all those uh, villages and land, they had their villa in the middle of the town. But anyway, so I went to school, and on the minute we came out of school, we had to help in the produce. We had to burn soap radishes. We had to cut, cut cauliflower. We had to cut lettuce, and we had to pick beans, and we had to pick cherries, yeah. We had a couple of cherry trees, and then we had uh, berries, too, and Brussels sprouts. So, I mean, the stereotype is all they grow in the Netherlands is tulips, and, and then here in the San Joaquin Valley, we know the Dutch are great dairymen, but you guys were growing a lot of things. They called them the name for our people what did that were tounders, and they grew all the the produce, and then in the Westland, they had all the glass, and they grew the, the, the cucumbers and the melons, and the sovat has to be under glass. We had flat glass, but we had strawberries, early strawberries, and that was a big glass. They were up on an, on an uh, angle, and then you lift them up and set them and post on them, and then you pick the, the, the fruit. That's how that was. So basically, that's how we grew up, very simple. We didn't have everything what what we eat was basically what we grew. Everybody had pigs, and they uh, butchered the pigs. My uncle had a grocery store, the only one in the village. My dad would trade produce for the groceries. It was always done by bartering. Like, I wore wooden shoes. Even when I went to trade school, I wore wooden shoes because that's that's all we had, and they were handmade in the village, and my dad traded it for food, for produce. That's how we got our wooden shoes. And now my grandfather, Vryhoff, he was a member of the city council for life, and he was an elder in the Reformed Church for life, but he also was the only tailor in the whole province, and he made all the suits for the, for the burgomaster, and for the guys who were in, in higher positions, and he made all the suits. He did it all by, by hand. My uncle, he had a small dairy, and the mortality rate for the calves was very high because they mostly sent, were in the stable, and they were higher up, and if the calf dropped, it usually got killed. So my grandfather, he would skin them, and he tacked them all on the side of the barn, and he put salt on them, and I don't know what he did and he made leather out of it. He made insteps for our wooden shoes, and that's how I I had to leave my wooden shoes in the basement at the trade school because I was not allowed to to get into the classrooms with wooden shoes, so he made those insteps, and that's how I went to the classroom. I love the ingenuity. I'm just curious, and I know that's a long time ago, but had you grown up Hearing stories about World War One was war even something that was real to you before it came to you there in in Holland? No, in school we've learned about World War One, and we also learned uh, we had to learn about the Boer War that was in in South Africa. And Paul Kruger was a buddy of my uncle Vandenut. My uncle Vandenut, mom's family, mom was raised 
in an upper sense, and he was a, a very successful businessman, had a big business. The tradition was, and, and some of the Dutchmen will know about it, but my grandfather, Vandernoot, and grandfather Vryhoff, they got together, and they decided that my mom had to marry my dad. That was a put-together marriage. It was ter- terrible because all the families became dysfunctional, and we had a dysfunctional family, family too, and that... Maybe this doesn't go with the story, but that's how it was. So you're the oldest of six kids, and in 1939, Hitler starts taking territory, and then in 1940, it it comes to you. Was there any anticipation that you were going to see something like this, or did it totally shock you when you saw that? I was kind of surprised, but later on, we found out that he didn't acknowledge Dutch. We we were declared neutral, but he didn't do that because... His biggest desire was to get to England. Between Holland, the hook from Holland, the corner of Holland and England, that's not very far. See, that's, that's really close. The North Sea is the one that separates it. And that was Hitler's deal to get to England. That was his biggest enemy. After he already conquered Hungary and Yugoslavia and Poland and all those countries. And then he went into Belgium and into Luxembourg and on into Holland, and on France put up quite a fight, but they eventually got run over too. And I noticed when I came to your home here in Hanford that you have the stars and stripes flying in front of your house. It's it's a representation of the freedom that we have here, and so many of us take it for granted because we've never experienced our homeland being invaded. But that's what you got a taste of just as a boy. How did your life change in the days well, and weeks and months that followed? drastically because they were starving us to death. I mean, that was the whole object of the, the German. The people in Rotterdam, they starved them and became skeletons. And see, we had to take our produce. We used to take it to the market. But after the Germans, when they came into our village, i tell you what they did. They talked to schools. There were three schools. The schools are all supported by the government. We had a Catholic school the public school and the Christian school. I went to Christian school. And when the Germans invaded the, the village, the big garnison with the Ortskommandeur, why, they took over all the schools and they put their main amount of soldiers in the school. But on the control of the population, think about that, they went all around the village. We had a pretty good-sized home. It's still, it's still there. It was a, a, a triplex. And my grandfather owned it. My uncle Bill was on, on the on the north side. We were in the middle, and he was on the south side with his workplace and all that. And we have kids, of course, so we had to take three, a front living room. My uncle Bill had to take three, his front living room, and my grandfather took four, so that's ten. And then the neighbor they put an assessor. That's the black uniform. Those were the the bloodhounds. Dirty, I'm not going to curse, but anyway, they put him there to control their own Wehrmacht. You had ten of the Wehrmacht in, in your home between the three parts of the triplex. And then what happened was, we were hungry, uh, very much so too, and they took all our food. All the food, there was no more food in the village. They took the pigs, and then we had three horses, and they took two, and they left one. And then what happened was, they took the electricity and everything was blackout. We uh, had a gas stove, but we, have the, we had a big boot stove, my mom did, 
I heated the water and did a lot of the cooking because we only had a two-pitter, you know what I mean, two a deal for gas. And then what happened was the uh, assessor would f- force my mother to, they had boots with, around her, uh, there was a cap like that into the to their boot. Right. And they had a, he, mama had a polysome, he brought over the material, and it had to be polished so you could see your face in it. And then he would bring a beefsteak, can you think about that, and Mom had to cook it for him at the wood stove, and the smells made the water run out of our mouth, and we were really hungry. We were eating, we dug the roots for the willow trees. The willows had soft roots, and you can never sweet, and we would eat those. And then we, Mom made cakes out of uh, beet pulp, because they, they grew sugar beets for the cows. They crushed them up, and Mom used to take the pulp bit large, and that's what we eat and stay alive on. So, I mean, this sounds like psychological and emotional torture here. You're eating roots from the ground and beet pulp to stay alive, just, just to survive, and the SS officer is forcing your mom to cook a steak while you all smell it. So he's just kind of rubbing it in your nose. Absolutely. And then the soldier during the occupation, we had to go to school and we had to go to the reform church. See, this our our village wasn't the Bentings, the princes, and that was all royalty. What owned all those villages in Holland? Okay, the Bentings owned our village. They had we had a castle, a real castle with everything, yeah. and we had a a big state church, which was a reform church from the queen, and. That church, all the noblemen that had died, they were all buried in the church. And the gravestones were really tough, you know, with the names in there. And we had to sit backwards with our knees on the stones and right on the benches. And they put a blackboard up there. That's how we went to school. Really? Because the German forces had taken over all the school buildings. Every one of them. And, you know, they had a lot of horses and they used the Mongolian prisoners of war to take care of their horses and cook their potatoes. Yeah. So you're taking this in as a seven-year-old turning eight and nine as the war goes on. I can't imagine what that's like. I mean, it seems to me it would be easy to be afraid, to be demoralized, to lose hope. What were those years like for you and your family? Well, it was a very stressful thing for us because in the Second year, the Duris, they started to go after the Jews. And uh, the Jews in our village, they all had a report in, and then they put a yellow band on their arm that said Jew. That was pretty well it. But then they started the extermination program under Himmler. So now they, had a, they forced them to work in the factories in Germany, which were constantly being bombed, because now the Allies had gathered in England, and they were flying missions that started about the third year. So now what they're doing is they they started exterminating the Jewish people, and they were they had concentration camps in Dachau and, and the other ones I've, I've been there. And anyway, South Holland, that's where I was born. That was the province of South Holland, and the ocean was right there, the North Sea, and on all the, the other waters. There was a small truck, steam train, what brought all the, the farmers and the dairy guys 
to the market every week. And also it hauled cattle to Rotterdam to, to go to the market to be sold. And they were rounding up the Jewish people, women, children, and I see my, my uncle Pete, he had a produce store and a grocery store right next to the railroad track, and then there was a pub there, and then there was a water tower, and the steam train had to get water right there at the stop. So here comes those cattle wagons loaded with all those crying people, Jewish people, and my uncle, there was three soldiers there, they were, they were, they were not the assets, they were soldiers, and my uncle was, their hands were all hanging out, and he was giving them food and water, and, and those soldiers did help. The soldiers themselves were not that bad, especially the older ones, because they were forced into the army. But the Hitler Youth, that was the fanatics. That was the, the, the 18 years old and six, 17 years old. Those were the horrible ones. Because they had been brainwashed into this? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. The Hitler, he was uh, raising Edelgermane, uh, uh, and he had breeding farms. There was one in, uh, close to our village. He had uh, a pure German woman, blue-eyed, and on the officers, the pure officers, they bred them, and on those, those kids were all raised under the, the regime. Yeah, that's a fact. Hard to fathom some of the realities of the Third Reich and the different methods Hitler and his regime hoped to achieve world domination. It's time for our first break, but there's much more to come with 90-year-old Dutch Vryoff of Hanford, California, a young contributor to the Dutch resistance during World War II. When we come back, more of what he witnessed firsthand in the Netherlands more than 80 years ago. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. What I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328. Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and a haunting yet fascinating account from Dutch Vryhoff, whose world changed when Nazi forces parachuted into his village in 1940. He was just seven at the time, but would soon be engaged in the Dutch resistance. We're going to hear much more about what that meant, but when we left off, Dutch was talking about the time period when he became aware of what Hitler's regime was doing to his friends, his neighbors, and countrymen of Jewish ancestry. 
when you would go to your uncle's market there next to the train tracks, you actually saw this I happening? With my own eyes. Oh, you better believe it. No toilet, no nothing. It was cattle wagons. Yeah. And they had them all in there. And they were all, they would transfer them and order them to the big steam train. They go right through the concentration camp and they got them. And did you know that's what was happening to them yet? We did. Oh, yeah. The underground was really informing us, but they were taking all the youth, the, the young Dutch guys, to work in the in the uh, factories in, in, in Germany, and a lot of them got killed, too. And, you know, you mentioned them rounding up all the Jewish people, putting the yellow things on their arms and, and marking them as subhuman, basically, as what... Hitler was seeing them as. But when you talked about growing up, you said, you know, there was a public school, there's a Catholic school, a, a Reformed Christian school. So did you have any Jewish friends growing up or no? The Jewish people that I was acquainted with, yeah, we had some Jewish pe uh, boys in our class, and their, uh, their parents all had businesses. They were the business people of, uh, uh, they were in the closing business, a lot of them. Yeah. So these are people you grew up with, and now all of a sudden, you're seeing them persecuted. They're persecuted. That's absolutely true. And then now the rest of the story is there was the Katz, uh, the Katz. It's K A T Z, a paper factory in Rotterdam, mm -hmm. that was owned by a Jewish family, very big factory, but delivered paper all over part of Europe. And they had one one girl, Rosa. The Germans were trying to get them, but the underground uh, got them, and the, the Dutch fishing boats would get paid, and they would take them to England, which wasn't very far. But the German, the Kriegsmarine, and the U-boats, uh, they, uh, they got a fifth of that uh, real quick. And because, you know, the harbors are all very close, and the North Sea is not that big. Between that, uh, Holland and England, it's bigger uh, up on north. But anyway, the cots, the man and his wife were at, a, at one fishing boat, and the little girl, she was only three years old, was at the other fishing boat. The parents' fishing boat got caught, and they, they got them. The other boat escaped with the little girl. And uh, the underground got it, and because it was close to where we lived, my mom told them that we would take over the little girl. So we got that little Jewish girl, and uh, she stayed with her all through the water. They painted her hair, and then she had my, my, my aunt, she was a seamster. She made Dutch clothes for her and wooden shoes, and, and, uh, and she survived. But we, we hid her. They, we, we grew strawberries. And they, we had crates, and, and they were all in the shed, and they made a little shelter there for her. And when, when the Germans came around with, on a patrol, then they, well, they would put her up there. You know what the penalty was? Well, that was going to be my next question, because I don't think it was a very soft penalty. The penalty for hitting a, Jew, a Jewish person, kit or whatever, was to burn all your possessions, and you, the whole family would get shot right on the spot. That was a penalty of hiding as Jewish people. And as a boy, you're aware of this? Oh, we were aware of that. Absolutely we were aware of it. It was posted all over the village. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Posted all over the village. And then, so she, she survived when Israel became a state, was 48. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they wanted every Jewish people to be moved to Israel. And she did. And on the... And she kept in contact with my, my folks, even still over here. But anyway, Don, I'll tell you what murderers they were. There was a little factory 
in our village, owned by a family. They uh, made ropes for the ships, big ropes, mm -hmm. and they grew, and they had a field where they grew hennep. Hennep is a, is a poppy type things, but that's what the stuff which, what grew, that's what they made the rope of. And they made, that was a factory there, a north of town. And the spoormaker, that was one of the guys there, he was one of my classmates. Well, anyway, in Holland you get really hard winds because of the temperature changes. And there was a pub, on, it was on the dike, and there were, the factory was right there on the south side of the dike with the, the house where, the, where they lived, the, the owners of the factory. And it was all made out of brick, you know, the, the factory was. Right down the street there was a, a pub, and, uh, and the Germans, they went on patrol, they were on patrol on bikes. And now they had a, the gun across their back, you know, and there was usually two or three, and they, all over the village, they made a patrol. Well, they went through that pub, and they kind of got a little lit. And what happened was, the wind, there was a big power line running from the pub to the factory. And that power line came down because of the wind. It was a pretty, pretty hard wind, very hard. And the first German, he rode on the power line, which was across the road, and he got hung up. So the other one, one of the other ones, trying to help him, so he got up and they both got electrocuted. So the next morning, why the assessors moved in, the whole detachment of the assessors, and those were the, the mean ones. And they got six people out of the out of the, the factory. And this is witnessed by a lot of uh, the dozen living on the dike there. They took father and son, three fathers and three sons, all the sons. They lined them up by the wall of the factory, got the, the woman and the kids out of the house, and they shot them all. And then they loaded them up, and they took them to the, the government house, the village government house, and that was in right in the village next to the castle, and it was a very old, and it said marble in the front, ornaments from lions and a big old, and they laid all six of them there with the bullet holes and blood all running out of them. They cordoned off the village, and we all had to walk past it. They lined us all up, and we had to walk past it. And I'll never forget that. They're basically saying this is what's going to happen to you if you don't play along. If you do something to the, to the Wehrmacht. So I mean, I've got so many questions. I'm just trying to imagine myself in your shoes. And I'm also thinking about your parents. I mean, this couldn't have been easy for them, for any of you. I'm just curious how they handled it and how your family kept hope alive in what seems like such a hopeless and nightmarish situation? Well, we were all uh, raised in the, in the Reformed faith, and we were Christians, and you were taught, you know, to uh, care for each other and, and help each other, and that was the way that the Lord wanted it. So that's basically what my folks, you know, they, there was nothing fancy about any of this. It was all, we were poor. And down the underground, there was the Mars River was next to the village, and, and it connected right with the ocean, the Mars River did. And it had an island, and there was a big farm on there, an old uh, dustman, whole dust family, with some uh, farmhouses and everything, and they grew potatoes on that island. It was a real good soil for potatoes. 
Well, the underground, they set up headquarters there. They also had the headquarters in in the villa where the, the, band, the Bantings, they were moved out, and they, the Ortskommandeur, that's the guy that was the, the officer in charge of, of all the, the troops, you know, there was probably a thousand there, I guess, I don't know how many, and he, he that's where he had his headquarters, and he had all his officers there, and he had those trained German shepherds, and they were trained to kill. And they had Arabian horses, and he would parade through the village. Oh, and then they were forcing us to, to make the Hitler salute, Heil Hitler. And, and we, we told them we were not going to do it. And we got actually beat for it in school, mm-hmm. at the church. Yeah, they came in there, and then we had to make the, the... They put a picture of Hitler up, and then we had to salute him. We never did. And then the underground, they had the, the, uh, the warehouses there at the place where the, where the noblemen were put up. They had uh, stables and servants, and they had a big supply deal there. There was a cook there. He was a big old heavy-set cook, German cook. He cooked for uh, the officers. The underground told us they found out that he liked the Dutch Geneva, that's the Dutch whiskey. He liked that, and it was 90 proof. Cause for the people. So they give us, and it came in uh, made out of uh, clay containers, and it had a, a stopper on with a, with a clip. And the underground, they give it to us to get the cook drunk. So he, he would give it, and men didn't take him long. He'd be drunk, you know. And the German shepherds were all tied up uh, with handlers. They wanted batteries because they were given Morse code to England what was going on in the village, okay, with the troop movements and all that. So we had to steal batteries, and, and we did. There was a dry canal right next to the villa, and on the, it went with a curve in it. And the bakery, it had a basement, and that is where that, the opening, I mean, the opening from the canal went into the bakery. And that's how we did it. Well, it went from berries, and then we, they had uh, egg powder and, and milk powder in containers with a handle on the, on the side, a rope handle. And we would steal that because we were starving, you know. So that went along, and it uh, all went along for a while, to tell you the truth. There was about 12 of us, and we were all kids, about, you know, 10 years, 11 years old. And the underground had told us what to do and stay low, and so we did. And, you know, this is really not funny. But anyway, now they wanted to uh, get some ammunition. And they, the ammunition was in a track. It was all in a, in a deal. You could load a gun, and then it would just go through there. A whole string of ammunition. Well, there was a name for it. I can't remember. Bandoliers. Bandoliers or whatever. And it was all in in cases too, you know. So we got some of that to the underground uh, because they had weapons and they were pulling. See, I cannot get too far out of line, but it all connects together. See, what what happened was, by now, they're flying bombing missions every day. And they were the English uh, Spitfires and uh, the American P-38s or whatever it was, they flew a guard for them. In other words, but of course the German Messerschmitts, they would come and they pick an air fight, and um, the air fight happened right over a village, and it was quite a uh, thing, something to watch, you know. And one of those Spitfires, it got shot down, and the pilot he bailed out right smoke in front of our house. 
there was a meadow, and he came down, and man, there was, I bet, a hundred soldiers waiting for him. I still can see he had one of those flight jackets on with, with fur and the goggles and, and the cap, you know, and he had a, a pistol on the side. Well, he landed and they disarmed him and everything, and then they marched him to the village. In the Catholic school, they made a, a prison because it had an underground uh, quarters from the Middle Ages. Yeah, and so they had several pilots there, and the underground, they staged a, a raid trying to free him, okay? But it got fooled, so that's, and one of the undergrounds got shot, but he lived. But anyway, that's why they wanted the ammunition. And that's a little bit the rest of the story. But anyway, what happened in the meantime, and this all goes into the, into the story, really, we had to take the Dutch people, the people of Rotterdam were starving, and they were skeletons. They would come to the village, and they dig the roots for the trees to stay alive. And on every morning... Uh, and then we had to take the produce to the German Wehrmacht. We could not take it to, well, we used to take it, but now it has to go to the warehousing system of the, of the Wehrmacht because they, they needed food too. They were hungry. So we had it in boxes, you know, and we had a wagon and with a horse-drawn wagon, and, and they would load it and then take it to Rotterdam, to the Wehrmacht. But what happened was they would only get halfway and a whole bunch of people just starved to death would start yanking on the on the boxes and start taking the stuff out of the wagon. So the the, the Wehrmacht, they put two two soldiers on horseback with their uh, bayonets. Their bayonets were about this long on the end of the gun, and anybody what came, they would bayonet them. Yeah, yeah. that's what they did. And there was a certain route which we went uh, always to to do that, and that went past uh, uh, was an, uh, the airfield from from uh, the Holland was Walhaven and they had the uh, and it is kind of a bad word to say but it was F O K K E R 1 those were the double tail fighter planes of Holland they had about 25 there and when the Germans invaded there was only about six of them were able to take to the air because there was already at that time, people, see, Hitler was a dirty socialist, and there was already an, an, a movement of socialists what was breeding over, and they had put sugar in the tanks of those aircraft, and the engines froze up, so it was only six of the of the whole thing what was able to take to the air. So you're saying the sabotage was carried out by... Dutch sympathizers to Hitler? Mm-hmm, yep. And what happened was, we used to have to go past there to go to, to take the, the produce, the wagon. And at a certain time once, they said, oh, you can't go there anymore because there's a secret, something secret going on. Well, what they were doing, they were building an, a landing pad for the V-1 rocket. And that was the low-flying bomb, real stubby. And it had, it was black, and it had swastikas painted all over it. That dirty bugger, and I'm not telling you, I'm telling you the truth, came right over our house, right over our house, over the trees, right over our house, and it went like the whoo, whoo. Every time you had a big fiery tail, oh, I can still see it. And every minute you think it was going to quit, you know, but thought it would get a, a spurt again because of the rocket. Well, 
a few of them got to England with nobody money because the underground right away knew when one of them was shot off and they would morris coat England that one was coming. So they put up those uh, PT boats in the in the English canal, in the canal between Holland and England, and they put up a, a spare fire, and we had a flat-top house, and we could stand on top of the house, and we could see the fire going up and on a big explosion, and then we knew that the V2, the V1 rocket, was was didn't make it to England, so there was not very many made it to England, but that's that went along for a while, and then they had an a more sicker thing, and we had to make a big way around it. And sure enough, we heard the, the it was a horrible thundering explosion. We were only 11 kilometers, not even that far from Wallava, maybe only eight. And whenever they shot off, there was a V2 rocket. And that bugger went straight up in the air and would come over London and drop. And did uh, carnage over there, carnage, yeah. really. Oh, yeah. But you see, they had a certain, every time that they shot one off, they killed somebody, and they were using Hungarians and Mongolians to help with the ignition of that, that rocket, because somebody would every time get killed. Yeah, and then what happened was, every night there was a, a train come from uh, from Germany or wherever they had their, their uh, refinery, I don't know what, where the fuel came from, but they would bring that fuel, because it took quite a bit of fuel, to fire that V2 rocket. So that went along for for a while, and we can see it, and every time there was the, the whole ground shock, and we heard the detonation of the rocket being fired. And then what happened was, the Americans, we found that out from the underground, they always brought us pamphlets about the news of England. The Americans had a night goggle, a night glasses, and they were going to be able to fly the fighters, the, the, the Spitfire and the P-38s at night, and that's what happened. They attacked those trains. First, they tried to do the sabotage. You know, the underground would put charges and on the train derail, but but it didn't work. And, but now, they were onto something. So that was when the turning of the war began to happen. And that's part of why he can tell us this story today. But what about the time he and his friends got caught stealing ammunition from the Germans and got pinned down by machine gun fire? That's a story you don't want to miss. And we'll hear it in his own words when Hometown Heroes comes right back after this. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with search strategy marketing. It's not about how much you spend, it's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to hometownheroesradio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is, Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. 
When prices start going up, we all look for ways to save. So here's a simple message for you. Look no further than EECU. Did you know you can finance your mortgage through EECU? How about a home equity line of credit? EECU makes HELOC loans easy. And when the car business is all over the map, the auto loan rates are as steady as can be. EECU is a not-for-profit credit union, not a bank. So the members always win. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today or call one 800 53 Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, brought to you by this local station and its sponsors, and presented everywhere, on the air and online, by Provident Payments, one of the fastest growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and an eye-opening perspective today from 90-year-old Dutch Vryoff of Hanford, California. He was just seven years old when the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands began. And we've heard him describe things that most of us could never imagine living through. And you've mentioned, you know, the underground a few times, and, and some people may have read about it or heard different anecdotes about it, but... It sounds like you and, and basically all your family were involved in the underground in some way, huh? We were. And the, and the thing was, uh, my uncle, a lot of the Dutch people, they live in Rotterdam on, on enormous boats. They were made of, of the, 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 the boats that go on the Rhine River. They haul all kinds of stuff on the Rhine River. They're very big, and they would build uh, homes on them, and then they anchor them in the canals in Rotterdam. Because Rotterdam is all water, and it's direct contact with the ocean to the waterway. Anyway, my uncle, I mean my grandparents, they had moved from the fancy home in in, in, in Mavelis, and they were living on a boat, because my uncle, they had all the stand guns, they had stand guns in that in that time. And those stand guns were very, very accurate, fast weapons, and the underground was using them, and they stored them in the belly of my grandparents' houseboat. And that was something which was almost unbelievable. It was the truth, and he was really heavily involved. You can see him on that picture there. But anyway, when they firebombed Rotterdam, and then they came with a second wave about two weeks later or three weeks later, I can't remember, because they were still not capitulating the way they wanted them to be. So they they did they came with a second, and they also had torpedo bombs, and they torpedo bombed my grandfather. He had a big business on the water, with an, uh, a runway going through it, and he served all the Chinese restaurants in Rotterdam with with uh, with fish. But he also had the rights to shoot, and he had a deal where the the, the fowl came over. Uh, the ducks and the, and the geese, and then he had a deal where he had a tame ducks, and they would make the noise, and then those would fall down, and then he would shoot them, and he would dress them out for the Chinese restaurant in a certain way. They had to be dressed out. So he had a big business. Well, he got a torpedo bomb, blew them out of the water, and it hit the, the ship. My grandfather and my grandmother they were able to swim, they knew how to swim, they made it to the shore, 
and on they walked all the way to our village. I mean, I'm just, this is mind-blowing stuff. So this is the grandfather that had all the guns stored in the, the bottom of his houseboat, and they bombed them? Yeah, they bombed them. And you're just a kid taking this all in, and, and what I hear you saying is you were risking your life every time you agreed. I forgot to tell you, yeah? uh, when we were starting in on the ammunition uh-huh. one day, and it was uh, it had rained, there was a little bit of water in that, in that canal, but not much. We just had gotten two cases with the deals on the handle it took two of us to carry them and so there was two cases there was four guys and on the other guys they had some more egg powder and all of a sudden one of those stinking german shepherds broke loose and he came there and he started he came in and trying to attack us and of course the guard came out there and he seen what was going on now this is you probably say you sucked this out of your tongue but i didn't this is a true story <laughs> this guard he set up a machine gun and he kept rattling us, and every time, and we were in this canal, and we had to stay down, and then they came, the several soldiers came, and they took all our stuff away, and they gave us a beating, and they let us go, and that was the truth. So we all peed in our pants, because we were just petrified and thought they were going to kill us. They really, they set up a machine gun with a deal like that and they laid behind it and they kept just rattling over the canal. And we couldn't move. <laughs> and the Zimmer Sepp was right on the edge over there trying to attack and they had to restrain that dog because they were killers. They had four of them. Well, yeah. I, I'm sure most of the people listening right now would pee their pants, too, if they found themselves in a situation like that. I'm trying to imagine being a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid and dealing with those kind of conditions. Did you get used to it after a while? What happened then is the English started to, uh, and the Americans started to fly more shortage, you know. And now they knew that the headquarters, the underground had told them that the headquarters from the that whole thousand men was right there in the hill Villa Hendrina, that's what it was called. That was from the Bentings. So uh, one day we played. Uh, there was a light pole in the in the village there, and that was the center of the town. Okay, mm-hmm. and then there was a music place where they play music on Saturday, and there was the school was right there, the public school. We played football, but we were so poor that the butcher would give us a bladder out of a male hog and he would keep it for us, and it was about this big. It was all messed up and bloody, and then there was a, a, a station at the corner, and he, he he would blow it up for us and put a knot in it, and that's what we used for, for soccer ball. So if you got it in your face, it was still, with all the bloody mess on it, it was not very good. But anyway, that, that's, that's how we did it. That's how poor we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, kick it with the wooden shoes. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, well, anyway, we were out there playing, and all of a sudden, the air uh, sirens started to go off. They had installed sirens when the race to warn the soldiers, because there was, right in front of our house, there was two batteries of anti-aircrafts, okay, right smack from here to the to the wall over there. And they made an, 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 a run, you know, they dug in the dike, and they made a run and put a, a roof with uh, sods over it. And, and when the air raid started, they came out of the school through, and then they manned that anti-aircraft gun. And then they start coughing away at the uh, Allies going over. Yeah, so that's how that was, see. The uh, sirens went off, 
And uh, there was four, I still remember it, uh, four, all of a sudden out of real low, four bombers came and they dropped their bombs, but they missed the villa. And they hit the service station, but they didn't kill anybody. And it hit, we had our land right there, and there was three big old gaping craters where the bombs had, had fallen. And we, the air pressure from where the bomb hit at the, the service station and didn't kill anybody, the air pressure knocked us over and we all were blowing against the fence of the school. That's the truth, man, of the, yeah. So they missed the, they missed the, the, the headquarters. And then, you know, things would, uh, were getting worse and worse. And then they had the, uh, the fight by when all the, the gliders landed by Arnhem and they, they were trapped. They, the Germans were waiting for them with heavy artillery and tanks, tanks and everything. This is what we know as Operation Market Garden? Yes. All the English were in uh, glider planes, yeah. hundreds of them. And they all got in a trap, and they they got uh, murdered bad. I had a grave over there, man, at the grave. You can walk for miles, nothing but graves of of air, uh, English and American people killed, yeah. Anyway, and you know, of course, we heard about all that stuff going on, and, and then they, they would come over and they drop propaganda uh, leaflets, the Allies did, and then we would know what's going on in the different fronts, and we found out about uh, Patton, yeah. We, uh, we heard all about Patton. And, uh, so anyway, it's, the war started to dwindle down somewhat, but, oh, I was going to trade college, and I had a bike, bike all the way to Rotterdam, and on every time that the, that the sirens start going, we had to go into the there was a ditch along the uh, in Holland they have bicycle paths all over, uh, that's normal, and there's a ditch on the long side. That's why you you do your business, you know. So every time that the air raids went on, then we had to get off our bike, dug down in the ditch. That's how how it was. It was just a very scary time. Uh, everywhere there were soldiers in every place. There was constant tragedies happening and all. And the hunger was the worst thing. And the uh, uh, no food, that was, was the worst of all. Things so many of us take for granted were definitely not taken for granted by Dutch Fryoff. But I'm realizing we're going to have to continue this conversation on our next episode of Hometown Heroes because we're out of time, and I do not want you to miss his memories of the day his village was liberated. He's got some great photos of that day that I have posted for you at hometownheroesradio.com and the Hometown Heroes Facebook page, where you can also find a short video of Dutch with a special souvenir he's held on to for all these years. More of this immigrant's journey, including why he is so thankful he made it to the United States. That'll come next time here on Hometown Heroes as we see through the lens of one who had rights and liberties taken away by a tyrannical regime until the Allies came along. Another example of the truth behind those four words we conclude with each week on this program, freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge. Only their personalized service can deliver at ProvidentPayments.com.